0: So we submit our lives to the teachings of God's Word, 1 Timothy 5, 17 through 6, verse 10, I want to welcome all of you as God's people, our visitors, you who are live streaming the service this morning, may God add His blessing to you and make you well enough in due time to be able to join the people of God, but we know that His blessing finds also his way into your home and your situation. So we'll read together 1 Timothy 5. And let's read glad, glad that we have the word of God. God's word is not scared to touch situations of all kinds. 5 or 17, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that they may rest or the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging Doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also, good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Chapter 6, verse 1, Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants or as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they're brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness... With contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith, And pierced themselves with many pangs. People of God, let's look at verses 1 and 2 again. Therefore, or let all who are under a yoke as bondservants or as slaves. Regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. So that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they're brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. May God bless this word to our hearts and lives. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, once again we meet this very important truth that the gospel of Jesus Christ is a spiritual reality with powerful social results. A spiritual reality that has an impact on all your relationships, your whole life in society. Everything you say, everything you do, everywhere you go. It impacts how we relate to men and women, older and younger, chapter five verses one and two. It impacts how we take care of and honor the widows. It impacts how we honor elders, even when they sin and need censure. And now we look at a new section, how the gospel also has a word for bond servants, or slaves. So we wanna look at three things this morning. First, slavery. What about this institution? What's the Bible's view of it? Second, equality. The equality of slaves with their believing masters. And thirdly, testimony. The testimony that slaves are to give in the way they obey their masters. So first, slavery. 1 Timothy 6 verse 1. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants doulos is the Greek word, slaves, Men and women and children who are bonded to their masters and belong to them are under their service. Let them regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. And at first glance, it seems like the Bible supports that it approves of slavery, and this has been a stumbling block to many in their view of Christianity, that the Bible supports and approves of slavery. Well, people of God, it has a lot to say to slaves and masters, recognizing that many are in that condition and urging them to live godly lives. But the Bible is a book of emancipation, setting slaves free. The first slave in the Bible mentioned Hagar, the Egyptian maidservant. Then Joseph, Potiphar's slave. And then Israel under the Egyptian taskmasters, slaves in the land of Egypt. What does the Bible have to say about slavery? We do read in the Bible of Hebrew servanthood. That if people were in a crisis and they lost all their money and they had huge debts they couldn't pay to somebody. That their way of banking was to hire themselves out as slaves or their children out as slaves. To pay their debt. But they had to be treated right. The Bible manages how slaves are treated, and in the year of the cancellation of debts, every seventh year the slaves are to be set free. It's a book about setting slaves free. The Bible is another type of slavery found in the Old Testament was for prisoners of war. They were captured in a holy war and served as a slave. They had to be treated as humans, and if you injured them, they must be set free. There were penalties for mistreatment of slaves. The Bible doesn't condone these forms of slavery, but it does regulate them to prevent abuse. And two things are absolutely and explicitly condemned when it comes to slavery, the abuse of slaves and human trafficking, the slave trade. The penalty for the slave trade or human trafficking was death, Exodus 21. Then we come to Roman slavery. That's what we're dealing with here in the New Testament. The economy of the Roman Empire was built on slavery. Rome was the home of approximately 50 to 60 million slaves or a third of the entire Roman population. It was by and large the work environment of the whole empire. Many slaves were indentured servants, which means they hired themselves out as slaves, and they would make a little bit of money, and the idea was they would buy their freedom. And so the average age of getting your freedom in the Roman Empire was 30. So you might serve as a slave from age 15 to 30 and then be able to buy your freedom. If they entered a slavery bond in their teen years... That's how they would eventually find their freedom, through working for a master. Others entered slavery to pay a debt. It was a form of banking. Rather than take out a loan, they or their children became slaves to pay the debt. And later on in history, many were immigrant slaves. Somebody would sponsor them to move to their land, move to their country. And then they had to serve for seven years at no pay to be able to pay back their sponsor, And then they would go free. Some Roman slaves were actually paid. And owned their own businesses and ran their own trades and even owned their own slaves. Even while they themselves were still slaves of their masters. Some masters were kind and fair and treated their slaves as co-laborers. Many laborers were cruel and regularly beat their slaves. But the unique thing about the early church is that slaves were attracted to the gospel. There were converted masters in the churches, but there were many more converted slaves. Now, that's someone expected because there were many more slaves in the empire than masters. But it's also because slaves were drawn to the message of Jesus Christ. The Bible is itself an emancipation proclamation. Proclamation. It's a book of freedom for slaves. Think of how God treated the Egyptian slave girl, Hagar, when she was being mistreated by her mistress, Sarah. God met her while she was fleeing from her mistress. She was in the wilderness, and he promised to care for her, and she called God's name El Roy, the God who sees me. Truly here I have seen him who looks after me, she says. And then think of how Joseph was sold by his brothers as a slave to Potiphar in Egypt. And how God was with Joseph the slave. He's with the slave. And he comforted him and blessed him and gave him success and ultimately freed him to become the prince of Egypt. And how most of all God is known for setting his people free from bondage when they were cruelly enslaved in Egypt, being whipped by their taskmasters daily. God's the great liberator. Brothers and sisters, he's the great emancipator of slaves. And that's why slaves have historically fled to the gospel for refuge. And still around the world, it is the slave's religion, the Christian faith even though Christians have too often been complicit in the slave trade and in the institution of slavery and even have defended it from the Bible. That's blasphemy, to defend it. And yet, that's using the Bible against itself and against its great liberator, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's our great emancipator. Because we're by nature in the worst form of slavery at all, of all. And slave to our sin. In bondage to Satan. Held captive to do his will. We cannot set ourselves free. And the Lord Jesus came to set us free. To emancipate us. So that we can now be his slaves. Slaves of freedom. That's the message of the Bible. And so Paul's speaking to slaves here. And he's encouraging them to live godly lives in the midst of their slavery. Now you might think that Paul would encourage slaves to rise up and rebel. Well, Paul does indeed have some stern words for harsh Christian masters and Even more so for masters who underpay and mistreat their workers. But, you know, rebellion would have disrupted the empire. It would have brought beatings and death to the slaves. It would have left them poor and destitute. It would have brought dishonor to the name of Christ. And it would have left people without any means of employment. And so what the apostles of Christ consistently preached... Was freedom in Christ. You are Christ's slave now. He owns you, not your earthly master. You have a great inheritance in Christ. You have a wonderful future, and you get to live every day now in the hope of that future. That was Christ's message for both masters and slaves. Paul also says in 1 Corinthians 7, if you have an opportunity to gain your freedom, take it, take it. We also know that in Christian history, Christianity has been the soil in which freedom flourished and with the institution of slavery ended up being abolished. Leaders like Gregory of Nyssa and the early church, and later William Wilberforce and John Wesley and Harriet Beecher Stowe, and many others, spoke of the freedom that we have in Christ and of the need, the importance of abolishing slavery. Yet, God has a word here for slaves, for indentured servants for employees, whatever situation workers find themselves in, God speaks to you in Christ. Also, there's a word for masters, especially in other places, or employers, or whatever kind of work situation in which you find yourself, to speak to you in the name of Jesus Christ. God has a word of encouragement for all who serve the Lord and especially those who serve him in a harsh environment. He's with you there. And that's what I love about this word of slave. Let all who are under a yoke burden put upon you of serving. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants, as slaves... Jesus knows their situation. He knows their spot. He's with them there. He encourages them there. He instructs them, leads them, guides them there. The gospel is able to thrive, it seems, across history. In every political situation, whether it's dictatorship or democracy. And in every work situation, whether it's freedom or slavery, the gospel is able to thrive that's the work of our lord jesus christ the great emancipator so he gives slaves here this command regard your master as worthy of all honor and here's not only talking about honor your christian masters but here he's speaking about all masters, Christian and non-Christian alike. If only Christians would regard their employers this way today in a culture where it seems we're duty bound to despise them and to fight them because they're not worthy of their positions. That's the climate in which we live. It's not a gospel climate. Listen to what Jesus says in Colossians 3 and Titus 2. I'll just read those two passages. Colossians 3 22 and 23. Slaves Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. And then Titus 2. Slaves or bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. So that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Bottom line is this, brothers and sisters. All of all people, Christians should be the most hearty, hardworking, and respectful employees in the whole world. Let me say that again. Of all people, Christians should be the most hearty, hardworking, working Reliable, I forgot, reliable and respectful employees in the whole world. Because Christ has set us free from our bondage to serve him. Now, he doesn't speak about that here, but in other places, Colossians and Ephesians and James, Christian masters should be the best employers, the kindest Most honest, reliable, and loving employers in the whole world because they've been set free by Christ. That's the bottom line. Doesn't mean they should never push back at their employers, especially if they see them treating people unjustly, especially in our culture where we have more opportunity to address our employers. Certainly doesn't mean that we should obey our employers' commands when they tell us to commit to commit sin. But it still stands Christians should be the most hearty, hardworking, reliable, and respectful employees in all the world. Well, let's look for a moment then at the issue of equality. Well, what if your master has also become your brother? Or your mistress has become your sister in the gospel. And here you are on Sunday calling each other brother and sister and singing together in the pew and sitting together at the Lord's Supper as equals. and And then your boss tells you on Monday to go into the field and dig potatoes. Really? What should you say now as an equal, as a brother in Christ? Hey, bro, we're equals now. I got a deal for you. I'll dig for an hour while you sit and watch. And you dig for an hour while I sit and watch. Because we're equals now. Is that what the gospel does? The Bible says, those, verse 2, who have believing masters, must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved teach and urge these things. You slaves, you bond servants, you employees, whatever your work situation, don't abuse that brotherhood in the gospel by expecting special privileges and breaks and advantages and bonuses over other workers. Because in the Bible, you see equality and difference don't disagree with one another. They work together. Equality doesn't mean sameness. You can be equal and still have different stations in life. Men and women, husbands and wives are equal in the Lord, but they don't have the same tasks and callings. Jews and Greeks are equal before the Lord, but that doesn't erase their different cultures and nationalities. Christian masters and slaves are equal in Christ, but that doesn't erase their different stations and callings in life. So, Paul says in Galatians 3, verse 28, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male and female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. And that's true on Sunday. It's true on Monday too, but when you get to work on Monday, you still owe your boss a good day's work, even when he's not on the job site. And you still owe him honor behind his back and also to his face, though your faith brother's. Because he's still your master and he's still your employer in the situation of life where God has placed you. Well, brotherhood in the gospel is never a reason for dishonoring and disrespecting those who are over you. In fact, it's the opposite. Paul says it should increase your level of respect. Look again at verse 2. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they're brothers. Rather, it's the opposite. They must serve all the better. Since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. You know, the Lord has a love. For all men as creatures. Not a saving love, but a love. But he has a special love for his own. Whom he saved, purchased, saved by his blood. and Set them free. So as his children, I have the same. I have a love for all people because they're made in the image of God. Christian and non-Christian life. But I have a special love for those whom Christ has shed with his blood. Who are now my brothers and sisters in the faith. And now, when my master or employer is a Christian, I get to serve one who's a believer and who's one of my beloved family. I get to spend eternity with this guy. There's a special bond there in Christ. There's a new level of intensity in that relationship between Slave and master, when they're believers. Well, let's see, thirdly, the importance of testimony. Why should slaves show honor to their masters? To especially the believing ones, but to all their masters. Well, it's to give testimony to the gospel of Jesus Christ in three ways. Two of them are mentioned in verse one and one is mentioned in verse two. Number one, that the name of God may not be reviled. That's why we should honor them. That's why we shouldn't disrespect them. Number two, that the teaching may not be reviled. And number three, that we may show the love of Christ, especially to those who are believers and beloved. Well, first one. That the name of God may not be reviled or spoken against. Our purpose is always to lift up the name of our God. To represent him well before the world and also in our workplace. And that we will in no way put down that great name of God and invite others to speak against it. Paul has already spoken of this a couple of times. He says in chapter 2 verse 2, why should we pray for all people? This pleases God our Savior. It's pleasing to God. And then in chapter 5, why should children and grandchildren take care of their parents, especially when they're widows? Because this is pleasing in the sight of God, chapter 5 verse 4. That's our greatest desire and calling, is to glorify God and invite the whole world to do the same by our good deeds. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven Matthew 5 or 16, you know, Paul is speaking to the Jewish people, the covenant people in Romans 2, and he says, This is the faith you profess, you profess to honor God, but this is the life you live. You don't honor God at all in public life, and the name of God is being blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, the way you live, the way you talk. May that never be true of us—that the difficulties of the workplace lead me to bring leave a bad testimony at work, or that my attitude stinks and then throws a stench, a bad aroma in God's name. And that was Joseph's main concern as a slave in Potiphar's house, and. Potiphar's wife tried to seduce him? How can I do this and dishonor the name of my God? I have a testimony to give to you, to Potiphar, and to the Lord himself. So let us always ask this. If I say this or do this, how will that reflect on God? What will they think of my God? What will God think of this? Is this pleasing to him? That's the Christian's first concern and primary motivation. That the name of God may not be reviled. Secondly, that the teaching may not be reviled. What's the teaching? Well, if you look just ahead in verse 3... There's the teaching. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, it's the gospel. And God's name and the teaching are closer related because God's name is all written all over the gospel. But we want it to give a good name to the teaching. So Paul says to Titus, slaves must be submissive in everything and well-pleasing so that in everything what they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior, the NIV is, that they may make the doctrine of God our Savior attractive. That we may wear Christ as our clothing and look beautiful in the way we function so that the gospel is advanced through us. That's how the kingdom comes, through the words and deeds of Christians. So let's put the clothes of the gospel on in the way we live at home, but also in the way we live and function in our work situation. We don't want to respect and honor our masters through clenched teeth because we have to, but because we want to for Christ, who has set us free through the great emancipation of his death and resurrection. Brothers and sisters, this really brings us this this teaching of God our savior to the ultimate bottom line of slavery. Do you know how Jesus set us free? We were enslaved to sin and Satan. You know how he set us free? He came down from heaven stepped in our place and became a slave for us. That was offensive to the apostles. When he got on his neat knees to wash his, the, the feet of the disciples, that was the work of a slave. They were aghast. They were offended. If, if you don't let me do this, you, you won't be clean. Philippians 2, he took the form of a slave, a servant, doulos, a slave. By being crucified for us, and and that was the form of death intended for slaves. Jesus became a slave for you and for me to set us free so that we might live for him in thanksgiving. And that's the challenge for you. Do I accept his slavery? What he did for me To set me free from slavery. And do I want to show that glory. In the way that I live as a slave or a servant or as an employee. Or even as I am Christ's slave as an employer. Because every employer is under the master Jesus Christ as a Christian. We get to show the gospel in the way we function in all our lives. The gospel of Christ who became a slave for us and in our place to set us free so that we might live and die for him. That's the kingdom perspective. That's the kingdom perspective. And especially, and that's the third thing, the third testimony, especially when we get to show Christ's love for a believing master, I love to do my work because Christ is my master, but I love it even more when the one I get to serve on the job, my earthly master, is a Christian and I get to support a fellow believer and one who's especially loved. And I know that my support of him will go to serving the kingdom because he is a member of the kingdom of Christ. And I love to support the kingdom of Christ by supporting my master. That doesn't mean it's bad or in any way inferior to serve a non-Christian employer or business, that gives special opportunities as well, the Bible says. But when you have that privilege of serving a Christian employer and master, remember the special glory of that relationship and serve him, serve her all the better. Jesus became a slave for me to set me free. I was once a slave to sin. I was being exploited and ruined by sin and Satan. I was being destroyed and Jesus stood in my place. And he was crucified and destroyed for me and he came under the curse of slavery that trapped my life and set me free so that I can bear the yoke of service in this world. As a free man in Christ, as a free woman, a free girl, a free boy in Christ, to love, honor, and bless others in every situation of life. May God use us to show forth the doctrine of Christ in the name of God in the way we serve in any and every situation of life. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, which is a word of emancipation for slaves. You have set us free in whatever situation we are to honor the Lord, but help us to remember our identity as free in Christ and to use that as a reason to work hard, to work well, to work reliably, to work in love to work with respect and also to give masters the grace to be the best masters in all the world as Christians, the best employers. And in this way, Lord, may we all bring honor to the name of God and make the doctrine of God, our Savior, attractive. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.